Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak. And today I'm speaking with Wendy He Chong Chung, the author of Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media. Wendy He Chong Chun, who has studied both systems design and English literature, is Professor of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University. She's the author of Control and Freedom, Power and Paranoia in the Age of Fiber Optics, and Programmed Visions, Software and Memory, both published by the MIT Press. Wendy Chun, thanks so much for being on the MIT Press podcast today. Thanks. I'm very happy to be here. Now, your book, Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media, spends quite a bit of time discussing the nature of habits. As you point out, this has been a rich vein of study over history, with everyone from David Hume to many self-help authors looking at it. So has the explosion of new media since the turning of the Internet age given us new ways to think about the formation of habits? Um, that's an interesting question. I would put it less that the internet is a new way to think about habit, but habit gives us um, an interesting way to think about new media. So when we usually talk about new media, we focus on the new, the viral, disruption. So the valley right now is all about disruption. Um, and although these concepts are important, they're at best half the story. And in fact, I would argue they're misleading. Um, because if you think about it, if new media were really new, they wouldn't matter. Right? So new media can't really survive if they're really new, if they're really wondrous, if they're for the first time. Um, so many marketing studies have shown that we ignore new co commodities. Right? This is why grocery stores do something which I find completely annoying, which is change the entire layout of a store in order for us to pay attention to new items. So rather than focusing on the new or the viral, um, I argue in this book that new media matter most when they seem not to matter at all, um, when they've moved from the new and the noteworthy, the habitual. In fact, when they've moved from the noteworthy to the obsolete. So Friendster, I don't, do you remember Friendster? Yes, I do. I did never join, but I certainly remember Friendster and it was, it was all the rage when it came out. Absolutely. Um, so Friendster is no longer a social media site, um, but the notion of the friend remains. And smartphones no longer amaze, but they shape the lives of us, their so-called users. Um, so habit gives us a different way to think about new media, away from obsessing about the future or thinking about new media as always lying on the bleeding edge of obsolescence. Um, it moves us away from exhaustive worrying about technologies that don't exist towards to understanding how technologies remain in our actions and in our bodies. And they also get us um, thinking about new forms of networks and collectivity. Um, because habit, however personal, is also learned from others. So habit always links us to others. Um, through habit, we take something from the outside and make it part of us or um, our inside, which is why I think about habit in the book as shards of publicity encased in the self. Um, so they reveal that the individual, however separate, is also linked to others. Um, so it's no surprise then that data analytics focuses on habits. Um, so data analytics links individual ticks or individual active actions um, to larger collective tendencies. And habit is central to scaling networks. 
Um, but to return to your first question, it's important to realize that new media also change habit, um, which is arguably why habit is resurging again in philosophy and in business. Because now um, habit, what we talk about when we talk about habit, is, is arguably not habit, but rather addiction. Um, because habit and addiction are very different. Habit comes from habio to have. Addiction comes um, from addictio to lose. Um, and addiction um, implies dependency. You're dependent on something, um, some goal, or some reward. Um, and in contrast, historically, habit makes you independent. It makes you independent of goals and rewards. So even though you um, take on a habit at first, because you want to attain a goal, what's important is once it becomes habitual, um, it becomes independent of the goal, which is why Wendy Wood, um, a psychologist, has called it vestiges of past goals pursued. So it's past goals that have become embodied in your actions. And you only notice habits when you conflict with current goals. I, you know, I, I do not normally put my own life into this, but something happened to me this weekend that I would like you to talk about, like, because I think it actually falls into this. A few months ago, I got off Facebook for particular reasons, and this weekend, something happened that had me go back on Facebook, and it was really weird in that it had changed. It hadn't really changed to any degree. The same people were there talking about very much the same things, but it just felt really weird. It felt. I mean, there was. I had noticed a particular. I want to say dissonance as to when I was using it a lot to when, okay, now I'm off it for three months, going on doing my thing, and then coming back, it seemed very odd. And I don't know what, I don't know how that feeds into this question of habitual use moving into addiction and then stepping away for a little bit. It, all of a sudden, what I thought was familiar didn't feel familiar anymore. That's fascinating. Do you know what exactly um, had changed for you? Was it a slight change in the interface or was it... Um, what what do you think um, you found slightly odd about it? This will this will sound strange, but it's almost like, and I think that you know these are people who I have connections with. It was almost in a way. The only way I can describe it, and this is not giving a, I want to say, a, a clear version of it, it's almost as if one watch was watching a soap opera for a period of time and knew the storylines that were developing with point A, point B, point C. Then you just like step out for a little bit and you step back in. And even though it kind of looks like this thing is the same, the, that initial kind of, I want to say, narrative connection that kept you going through however long seemed to be broken within that three-month period. And so all of a sudden, even though I knew what they were talking about, that same level of, okay, I, I got to see what's going on next, what's going on, that just vanished. I mean, all of a sudden, if the, the people there, and I'm, this is going to sound weird because these are, again, people who I know, they became more discrete entities as, to, as opposed to, say, part of an ongoing narrative that had been going on while I was using Facebook consistently. And That's I'm not sure if that answer makes any sense. It does, absolutely. So one thing I argue in the book is that habit plus crisis equals update. And that what's happening now is we're always constantly disturbed, right? So what keeps you going on Facebook and what Facebook figured out really nicely with the news feed, because I don't, do you remember when the news feed first happened on Facebook? Um, people like, started screaming that this was surveillance, this was awful. Um, but what Facebook understood is that now to be is to be updated. And there's a constant stream of updates that keep you um, addicted or dependent um, and following um, 
uh, the the feed that happens. And so that's that moment where habituation and addiction have become uh, confused because traditionally, um, and this goes back to Felix Rebesson, who is the 19th century philosopher of habit. He argued that the, the wonderful thing about habit, which is second nature, so it's something learned that becomes part of yourself, is that it actually makes you independent from the environment as much as it responds to the environment. So, um, oh, um, just to give you an example of that, uh, the I think the clearest example he offers is the move from charity to morality. So in order to become a good person, people initially become charitable. Somebody asks you for something, you do something good back to them, and you get a reward for that, right? So it's a constant response to something else. But eventually, you start doing good things, not because people ask it of you, but because it becomes part of yourself. You become a moral person. And so... Um, what happens is that you're now autonomous and you produce those um, feelings within yourself. And what's key now is that through these constant updates, right now what's, uh, what has called habituation is being pathologized. And again, habits becoming addiction. And to give you um, another example, um, this one I get from my students. Uh, do you suffer at all from phantom vibrations? I do not. Okay. But you know what phantom vibrations is, like whether you think your cell phone is um, vibrating and it's not. Yes, not enough people call me for <laughs> to have that particular addiction. <laughs> anyway, but yes, the phantom vibrations, I do know about them. Yes. So what's interesting is that um, they're considered to be um, pathologies, right? So it was initially a diagnosis of pathology, right? Um, but at a certain point, why... Isn't it? Why is it a pathology? Isn't it a wonderful form of habituation? Like now, you no longer need your phone to give you that buzz. You know, you can provide it for yourself. I mean, this is what habituation was supposed to do. And so, it's interesting that um, again, with technology, we seem to be moving away from this autonomous notion of habituation to the constant disrupting of it. So you're addicted or dependent. So. Why is it that new media thrives on crisis? I mean, what is it about it that that, uh, that makes this crisis different between crisis in the old media, such as newspapers or traditional network television, which you think would also be a big fan of having crisis something going on? Is there a difference between what we would consider old legacy media and new media and how they treat crisis? So um, one classic uh, distinction would be um, thinking of mass media in terms of catastrophes and new media in terms of crises. Um, so crises – so a lot of people have argued that crises are now central to society. In fact, they're so central and so everyday that they're now banal. Um, so Lauren Berlant, for instance, argues that we live in the crisis ordinary, so life is now like a cul-de-sac and we're just surviving is a victory. Uh, or as, I, as the book is called, we update to remain the same. Now, what's key about crisis, um, and this also links to questions of neoliberalism, is that they imply decision or agency. So they're not catastrophes or natural disasters that simply happen. So they're not things that simply need to be covered, but they're things that need to be acted upon or responded 
to. So to go back to that question of the difference between mass media and new media, Marianne Doan, um, who's a film theorist, really influentially argued that television is dominated by catastrophes. Um, and it's at its best when it's covering catastrophes or natural disasters. Um, and in fact, it, what, it happened, what it does is treat crises like catastrophes, as things that you simply watch. Um, this is why uh, TV has been linked traditionally to the notion of a couch potato. You simply watch what unfolds. So in, in contrast, um, new media are arguably all about crises. And the Internet initially was sold as critical, as calling everything into crisis. So I don't know if you recall, you know, the dot um, com era and when it was first taking off and everyone's saying this is the end of the brick and mortar economy. We'll now have friction free capitalism. Um, this was a crisis of democracy, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and arguably what you can argue is that new media has turned everything, um, all catastrophes into crises um, so that there's now no longer natural disasters but thing, or things that just happen, but now things that have to be responded to. Um, so think of the response to the Malaysian um, airline crash, right? It wasn't – there were – it wasn't an accident. There are no accidents, but rather there are, you know, conspiracies, decisions to be made, um, et cetera, et cetera. So going back to that question of neoliberalism, uh, so can we think about the explosion of mediums that we are seeing? Let's take a look at, say, the golden age, traditionally the golden age in America, uh, the 60s and 70s, in which there are only three networks. People got their news from one of the major three for 30, uh, for 30 minutes, and that really shaped to a large degree the national narrative. With these explosions of new media and going back to this question of the agency of neoliberalism, that, that, uh, that society itself no longer exists, that we are just all individuals moving towards our own particular goals, and there's some sort of, I want to say, Smithian invisible hand keeping us all together, is that the fact that there is these new divisions and these new medias coming up all the time thrives on crises simply because this question of a community view of what's going on in any particular view has been shattered because you now have individual slices that have enough transmission power to create what would have been, say, what we perhaps we would have called the fringe back in the 60s and 70s, to be able to give them enough power to say, no, this is the crisis that we are seeing, and we have enough transmission bandwidth now with these new technologies to create a sense that it is a bigger issue than it really is. Therefore, this is a crisis that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, I, that's a, a great way of thinking through things. I think that What's so intriguing about neoliberalism, of course, is it's always talked about in terms of individual empowerment, right? So um, there is no society. That was Margaret Thatcher's famous um, phrase. Um, there is no community. Um, so a move away from the notion that we have something in common, that we have this common identity or common property. Again, you know, mass media, as you pointed out with those three channels, um, taking individual eyes and making them we's. Right. So networks, on the other hand, you know, new media or the spread of network analytics assume difference, right? So they break down we's into individual nodes. Um, and what's important about networks is that rather than the we, it focuses on the you, right? So think of YouTube or the way Facebook asks what's on your mind. But what's key about the you is that in English, at least, it's both um, plural and singular at the same time. 
right? So, but even when it's plural, even when you address a whole bunch, you, um, you don't lump everyone into a we, but you still address people as individuals. Um, and so this has everything, of course, to do with neoliberalism and the idea of individual empowerment, um, of individuating. And of course, this has been viewed as both empowering and fundamentally disempowering. Um, so it's been viewed as debilitating because now that everyone's focused on themselves as individual agents, we can't have larger collective and structural action, right? So the example that's often given is that we now recycle rather than deal with um, serious issues to make the environment better, or we somehow think that because we bike to work, we're going to solve global climate change. Um, but what's really interesting is that even within neoliberalism, there are collectives. And this is where habit is really important because it's through habit, again, I'm thinking them as shards of publicity encased within the cell, um, that you get to certain notions of collectivity or um, the ways in which collective actions emerge. Um, and in fact, a fundamental premise of network analytics is homophily, um, which is the idea that you act like others like you, that your friends don't re represent a random um, sample of the population, but rather they're like you in certain ways. Um, and in this way, questions of race, gender, and sexuality come into play in systems that don't seem to be about them. So consider something like the FICO medical adherence score. Um, so it allegedly tells um, companies how likely you are to take medications on a regular basis. And one uh, key indicator is, is um, allegedly whether or not you pay for car insurance. Now, whether or not you pay for car insurance, especially within the U.S., has everything to do with race, class, gender, etc. Um, and so what's important is that these notions of collectivity are coming into these systems which allegedly aren't about them. Um, and so also think about the famous Target example. You must have heard about the Target pregnancy predictor, no? Yes, I know all about it. And just for a situation in which uh, Target was able from uh, a, a young woman's shopping thing to predict that she was pregnant, sent something to her parents, uh, sent something to her home. She still lived with her parents, and her, her father did not know that she was pregnant. And so essentially Target told her father instead of her. Exactly. And um, she was only 15. You know, father accosted Target manager, said, you're encouraging my daughter to have sex. Um, and she was pregnant. Now, now what's interesting is that Target um, has used data analytics to come up with a um, pregnancy predictor based on stuff like using unscented lotions or buying vitamins, um, which are, you know, classic indicators of morning sickness. Um, but what's interesting is that what are considered singular actions or actions that are out of the norm suddenly aren't noise but become immediately indicators of a larger pattern, right? So now there's no noise, there's no actions, but rather um, they become tied into this larger collective habitual action. Um, so I, I've, becoming, I've come to think of ourselves as part of some sort of monstrous chimera where we're all linked via these actions. Um, and I've also started to think of data analytics as the bastard child of psycho and psychoanalysis. Um, so there's no um, accidents, so there's no slips of the tongue, but rather symptoms. Everything's tied to a larger pattern. And again, um, 
habit is key to translating or, or this notion of habitual um, is key to translating these singular actions into these larger patterns. So finally, what's the conversation you'd like to see this book start or enhance among consumers of new media? Well, one thing I would love us to do is to start taking seriously um, the fundamentally public nature of networks. Um, so again, to realize how public and how open our networks are. And so for us to fight for public rights, um, rather than sort of retreating into an impossible notion of privacy or security. Um, and I think this is important because this would end slut shaming and blaming users for network vulnerabilities. Um, I'd love for us to move away from um, focusing on the viral and disruption, which often targets individuals and makes them the cause of various crises, to thinking about changes of infrastructure. I'd love for us to think about networks as a place that we could mutually inhabit. Um, and for us really to seriously and positively engage with habit and publicness. Um, because I think too often we run away from our public networks out of fear or we're afraid by how public these networks are. Um, and rather than um, doing this, I'd love for us to view ourselves and our habitual actions as characters in a universe of dramas that we call big data. Um, so I'd love uh, for us to treat our habitual actions as a type of grammar, as a grammar of action, which is what Phil Agri called it, um, to play with fiction, with hype, um, in order to change our future. Um, and again, wouldn't it be wonderful if we played with these habits, thought through them, so we recognize society in each other? Wendy Chun, the author of Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks again for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.